Filmmakers make films, but films make filmmakers. From blockbuster premieres to grindhouse theaters, late night cable to the local video store, there is no greater classroom for aspiring filmmakers than cinema itself. Join your host, Eric Skorzynski, as he dives deep into the minds of legendary directors, producers, actors, and more to discover their biggest influences and to explore the impact their films are leaving behind. This is Film School. Grab your popcorn. Class is about to begin. All right, Matt, thank you so much for joining me today on the Film School podcast. Thank you, Eric, for having me. It's a real honor. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to chat with you. And I was telling you right before I hit record, um, the realization hit me uh, sometime in the beginning of September that I had never really gotten to know much about Bruce Lee. And um, he's someone where... His influence is definitely felt. It's hard to imagine a world where Bruce Lee didn't exist with how much impact he's had on video games, TV, movies, etc. But, um, you know, there was a time before there was a Bruce Lee. And I'm kind of curious, before we dive into his very interesting and impactful career, can you kind of set the stage for what the cinematic landscape was right before uh, Bruce Lee really exploded onto the screen? Um, I think Bruce Lee had two really important impacts that you can see if you watch films before and after him. And the first one is, I was thinking when I watched like uh, the first season of Star Trek, um, Captain Kirk throws a punch and you can see that he misses the guy by three feet. <laughs> right? They just, right. they do the camera angle and it's, it's referred to as the John Wayne punch. And that was basically what fight cinema was. You threw a big looping right hand and maybe it tussled a little bit, and that was it. Uh, and so Bruce Lee brings in Eastern martial arts. Um, he studied various styles, um, beginning with Chinese Wing Chun, but you know, brought in Judo, etc. So that um, when you watch, uh, say, a Marvel movie, they're doing Bruce Lee fight choreography. It's kind of high impact. It's a little more beautiful than it would really be in real life. So I call it kind of enhanced realism. Um, and so every Western fight choreography in some sense or another is Bruce Lee. Yeah. It, sorry, I, I'm, I'm beeping on you. So I'm sorry about that. I got my phone connected to my computer. Sorry. No, no worries. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of curious to so like, yeah, the impact is definitely noticeable and you, you see it, you know, I, I went through a period last year watching a lot of Westerns, um, right. <clears throat> Westerns and, you know, I, I realized like the way that fights were done was a lot different and it was that John Wayne punch. It was that super long swinging, you know, dramatic stage punch, basically. I mean, yep. really, that's what it was. It was dramatic. The same with acting and performances. Everything was bigger because people were used to performing in live environments where people were sitting really far away. Um, I, I am curious, like, what was it that kind of got you started? Uh, I should probably ask that. What got you interested? Was it an interest in martial arts originally? Was it an interest in Bruce Lee? Like, what made you start kind of studying and analyzing his work? Well, you know, what happened was when I was 12 years old, um, this is dating me, but the first guy in my small town got a VCR machine um, and his older brother brought down a tape and he said, you guys have to see this. It's Enter the Dragon. Um, and we had no idea who Bruce Lee was. We'd never seen a Kung Fu movie. And he really became sort of a childhood hero because here was this 
scrawny guy with these popped muscles who was beating up these much larger guys. And when you're 12 and you're scrawny, that's sort of who you want to be. Your hero, yeah. <laughs> that's right. So in the same way, Luke Skywalker, et cetera, you know, when you're, you're a young boy, you're looking for hero models. And so Bruce Lee became mine and I started studying martial arts and got very much into it. And then later in life, started writing about martial arts. And then I found out that Bruce Lee hadn't had a proper biography written about him. And so um, many books about him, but not a real sort of tome like you get with other celebrities. And so I set about trying to write the biography as a kind of way to honor this childhood hero of mine who had changed the course of my life. Right, right. Yeah, he's he's such an impactful figure. And like you mentioned, yes, of course, uh, the fighting style, but also, um, I mean, just representation. I mean, you look at the 70s, the fact that you had someone who was an Asian man, like in starring roles in these films was huge. And, and I, I think really starting, I mean, his, his father encouraged him in as a child actor. So, I mean, he started really there. Um, but the first thing to really put him on the map and you're the expert, so correct me if I'm wrong, would mm-hmm. be his role as Cato in the green Hornet. Was that kind of the first thing that kind of brought national awareness to who he was? Uh, yes, exactly. So, uh, Bruce's story is interesting because uh, his parents are Chinese uh, and they came to America in 1959 as part of a Chinese opera tour. His father was an actor uh, and he was conceived and born in San Francisco. So Bruce Lee is an American citizen, but they go back to Hong Kong. And so he's raised in Hong Kong. And it's not until he's 18 or 19 that he comes back to America for schooling. And so He's a he's a product of these two cultures. He's he's an immigrant with an American passport, essentially. Um, and so he comes to America and he looks around. He had already been a child actor who had appeared in 20 different films in Hong Kong. When he arrives in America, he realizes there aren't any really decent roles for Chinese actors. Yeah, it doesn't 90s. transfer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's got a skill that he can't use here. Um, and so he thinks I'll become a martial arts instructor. And then through a various set of coincidences, he ends up being picked to be on um, uh, The Green Hornet. Uh, He gets a big break in Hollywood. So that's his first uh, role he gets in a Hollywood TV series. Uh, And so, yes, of course, that that would be how the Western world first came to know him. Yeah, I mean, something I think it's easy to lose context of, you know, for for casual I guess, entertainment consumers and people that aren't taking time to really study the course of, of cinema or Hollywood. Like it's easy to forget that television was not what it is now. Um, (laughs) And it, it really wasn't, you know, now there is this kind of interchangeability where a director can navigate between movies and TV and actors get on TV and then get launched into movie careers. And, that really didn't happen. You had TV actors, TV crews, TV directors, and then you had movie directors. And and the the one, the movie side, really looked snobbishly down on the TV side. And um, so so the journey for anybody going from TV to the big screen difficult for someone mm-hmm. like Bruce Lee is already facing some of the challenges you already mentioned. Not being a traditional American leading man in the 1970s. Uh, 1960s, you know, like there is this difficult, uh, difficulty navigating that. Um, 
you mentioned that he really looked to Clint Eastwood in, in your writing. You mentioned he kind of looked at the blueprint of Clint Eastwood's career, navigating from small screen to um, the big screen roles. How did that really play out? And what was the strategy, um, you know, for people listening, what was the strategy that Bruce Lee kind of adopted that really helped him navigate that? Yeah. So Bruce Lee's fascinating because he was very strategic in the way he thought about his career. He almost thought about his career the way he would think about a street fight. Like I'm going to fake here and go there. And so uh, after he'd been in the Green Hornet, it got canceled after one season, basically, because it wasn't very good. (laughs) And uh, even though Bruce had made a certain impact, it was kind of like, you know, the various network shows that people talk about for a second and then disappear and no one thinks of. Uh, and he was the second lead. So he wasn't particularly famous in America. Um, but what he had done is he had become the Kung Fu instructor to various celebrities. Um, Steve McQueen and James Coburn were two of his students. And so he wanted to leverage his relation, personal relationship with them to try to launch a movie career. And as you point out, it's really important to understand being a TV actor pretty much meant that no, almost, it was like the difference between college basketball and pro, right? Like two or three college basketball players get to play for the NBA. Most of them, that's the end of their career. Right. And that's the same thing with TV actors at that time. It, you got to TV and that was about as good as you were ever going to do. And so Bruce was trying to make that huge jump as an Asian actor. And there were no Asian leading roles. There were no films that cast Asians except as villains or houseboys. Um, so he was trying to do something that was essentially impossible on two levels, TV to right. movies, Asian actor to leading star. Um, and so he looked to Clint Eastwood who had jumped from um, doing TV Westerns to becoming a full fledged movie star by going to Italy and starring in those spaghetti, those famed spaghetti Westerns, right. um, the, the good, the bad and the ugly, etc. Uh, and so his thought was, if I go back to Hong Kong and make a name there, then maybe Hollywood will come to me. I need to essentially prove myself a proof of concept that I am a leading man and I'll do it in what would be an easier environment for me to succeed in, which is the Hong Kong film industry. Right. It it was, it was choice, you know, going and taking the, you know, the martial arts side and taking it into Chinese cinema. I, I, I'm curious, what was the the environment in the Chinese film market at that time? Because like I said, it's hard to imagine a world without Bruce Lee. It's hard to imagine martial arts movies before Bruce Lee. Um, was that something that was a massive industry at that time that he stepped into? Or was it something that, because it feels like, you know, as someone who is a casual reader of all of this, it seems like Bruce Lee was kind of formed and was forming Hong Kong cinema at the same time. Um, but what, what was he stepping into? Was this a new arena entirely? Uh, so he knew a lot about the Hong Kong film industry, having been a child actor, right? But having, when he left America and came back, it had changed and it was dominated by one producer, one production company, Shaw mm-hmm. brothers, So Shaw Brothers had a complete monopoly on the Chinese film industry. Hmm. The other, the other crucial thing to understand is we now all go watch Hong Kong cinema. Uh, But in 1970, no Hong Kong films appeared at international festivals. They were not distributed in anywhere outside of the Chinese speaking world. 
so the comparison I give is to like the Nigerian film industry today. Nigeria, wow. Nigeria makes a lot of films. They're extremely low budget and they're very popular and profitable within the African market. But no European, no American watches Nigerian films, right? They're considered too low budget, too low brow and too culturally different. And so when Bruce Lee was going back, he was going back to this very tiny parochial industry that also was not that into Kung Fu. Like most of the films yeah. were musicals or dramas or melodramas. They made the type of films that Hollywood made. They, they didn't, as we now think of it, only churn out Kung Fu movies. Right. They did that after Bruce Lee was successful. So there had been a couple Kung Fu movies that had been made before Bruce landed that had done pretty well. And it was starting to become a trend, kind of like, maybe the Iron Man stage of Marvel movies, you know, right. there'd been one Iron Man and people were like, Hey, maybe comic book movies can succeed. That's what happened. There had been a movie before Bruce arrived that had done well as a Kung Fu straight Kung Fu movie. And so they cast Bruce in another one trying to catch the trend and his blew up. Uh, the big boss became the biggest box office hit in Hong Kong history. And then of course, as we know with, the movie industry once something succeeds and everyone floods the market with it. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so really going into it, I mean, he was going in and essentially taking what was the B movie genre like superheroes at the time of, you know, for example, an Iron Man, you know, the way it was kind of viewed taking a, a or even further back, I guess you could say like X-Men, but taking a, a B movie kind of like, okay, this is for kids, or this is something that's kind of something else that we do and taking that into the market and then making it popular. So it's a, it was a really, that's a really interesting thing. Cause there is, there's a very calculated decision there, but he's also taking a huge risk, you know, trying to do something unique and, and different. And he kind of launched with, you know, excusing the term, like a one, two punch of movies. He had the big boss and fists of fury. Um, how quickly did the explosion of those movies spread overseas, like to where people said like, Oh, I heard about this and this started kind of filtering out into the American, you know, market. Um, so the, those two movies were made within a year. Um, and in Southeast Asia, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Malaysia, the Philippines, places that had large Chinese immigrant populations, Bruce Lee immediately became more famous than the Beatles. He was the most famous star anyone had ever seen. He just exploded. Um, but that didn't translate at all because, as I said, no one watched Hong Kong movies in the right, West. Yeah. So no one knew about it except for a few executives at like Warner Brothers and other places who tracked um, the East Asian film market because you know, Warner Brothers and the various other American studios would sell their movies over to Japan or to Taiwan. And so they had people who were looking at what was going on in that market. Um, and, the, and Warner's also had um, executives who had tried to make movies with Bruce Lee. So unlike, say, a Jackie Chan, Bruce Lee already had friends in the American film industry. And so he was able to call them up and be like, hey, I just made this movie. It's the biggest box office hit in Hong Kong. And, you know, they would be, they would want to watch it as opposed to, you know, today would be like, I just made the biggest film in Timbuktu. <laughs> like, yeah. No one, right. no, no one cared about Hong Kong in America, yeah. but because they knew him personally, uh, he got a little bit of traction, but it wasn't actually until 
um, his final movie, Enter the Dragon, was released that he that he became a, an international star. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting because, like like you said, mm-hmm. Bruce Lee, and this is another thing that's really just shocking is you know Bruce Lee, like you said, nobody knew Hong Kong cinema, but they knew. Bruce Lee. He was well connected behind the scenes with so many people. I mean, Roman Polanski, obviously. I mean, yeah, big, exactly. you know, really large names. Um, so I guess that is a, a something to consider when trying to navigate this this pivot. And his goal was coming back to the US and dominating that world. That's right. Um, what what was the reason he wanted to, you know, not remain just a Hong Kong? action star because he was seeing a lot of success what was the goal of of coming back and dominating the u.s market um well there was a lot of ones but the simplest would be uh for example uh enter the dragon was made with a five hundred thousand dollar budget at the same year the exorcist budget was 11 million so um like that's the kind of difference in scale between making a Hollywood movie at that time and a Hong Kong movie. So which would you choose? Right. Um, The catering budget on the exorcist was bigger than the whole budget for uh, enter the dragon. So part of it was simply uh, you could make the kind of movies that you were, that had big budgets, but also had great film directors, et cetera. Whereas it was a very tiny parochial industry. You know, Hong Kong has like 5 million people. Um, So that was part of it. But I think the bigger one was that Bruce Lee was extremely ambitious Uh, and he had become good friends with Steve McQueen and unlike and worked for him. He was his his Kung Fu instructor. Um, And unlike most people who would have been like, hey, I'm Steve McQueen's Kung Fu instructor. Bruce Lee looked at him and said, I want to be a bigger star than Steve McQueen. Uh, And Steve at the time was the biggest box office star in the world. So Bruce didn't want to just be a local hero. He wanted to be an international superstar. Uh, and the only way to do that is through Hollywood. Yeah, it, it's incredible. And it's something where, um, and, and I've got to ask you, and I know nobody asked you about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, but I got to ask you. So I, again, like I, Bruce Lee is someone who's so big that before you see a Bruce Lee movie, you feel like you have, you know, it's like, it's like the Godfather or jaws. Like you, you have a concept and you can quote more lines. You know, I think about star Wars, like before I ever watched star Wars as a kid, I could already quote the most famous lines from star Wars. Cause it was just such a part of right. the pop culture world. And um, you know, it is, it is interesting. Like now catching up, you know, discovering someone who has this legacy, mm-hmm. you know, going back and you listen to, you know, like the Tarantino and you listen to his daughter talking about it. And, and, you know, it's really interesting hearing about Bruce Lee as a person being so ambitious, dreaming so big, facing huge obstacles as again, an Asian man in this period of American history, trying to dominate this world in a genre that didn't exist here yet. You know, it takes a certain type of person and um, you know, it's just amazing, like how, um, how much drive that would take. And um, I got to ask about this because, you know, it keeps coming up the the once upon time in Hollywood portrayal, Mm -hmm. um, which in some ways I think it it can be overblown on both sides because it's, it's not the point of the movie. It's not a Bruce Lee biopic. Um, I'm curious, first of all, like what's your thoughts untainted from whatever I'm about to say. Um, And, uh, you know, what did you think is kind of a Bruce Lee 
aficionado. What what was your take on that on that sequence? Uh, yeah, so it's very interesting because I got involved in the controversy. I was brought, you know, reporters called me up and asked me, and then after I gave my opinion, then Shannon Lee, Bruce's daughter, weighed in with a very negative opinion, and then I ended up talking on the phone with Tarantino about about it. Wow. So yeah, let's get him so, on the call really quick. We're gonna do a that's quick right. two-way conversation. No, just kidding. <laughs> exactly. Um, and you know, the, the weird thing is Tarantino is one of the reasons I wanted to be a writer. You know, when I watched Pulp Fiction, I was like, I want to be a guy like that who can write something that amazing. Uh, but so I was watching the movie. I went in and I was like, I'm so excited. Tarantino is going to have Bruce Lee in his movie. And then it got to that moment and I, my heart sank and I was, I felt a little gut punched, uh, because what I thought he did was. He took Bruce's characters and essentially made it a kind of SNL caricature of him. Right. It was kind of mocking of who Bruce Lee was. And it wasn't that he didn't, he, you know, he read my book. He had studied him. He is the, he had taken aspects of Bruce's character and had simply exaggerated him for his own purposes to make the hero of the movie played by Brad Pitt more heroic by being able to kind of fight Bruce Lee and sort of knock him down a peg. Um, and so as Bruce Lee's biographer, I just felt that it was inaccurate, um, but not wildly. Like it wasn't a terrible version of Bruce Lee. It just was the kind of slightly mocking, unfair version. Um, and of course, it it's Tarantino. And so everybody wanted to talk about it. And of course, his daughter has a much more rosy version of Bruce Lee in, in her yeah. mind. So she takes it personally and then it becomes a big argument and the movie got banned in China because of it. So uh, it had real financial consequences. Uh, And I don't think that should ever happen to any artist. You know, Tarantino can make whatever movie he wants and we as an audience can say what we like and don't like about it. I love the movie. I disliked his portrayal of Bruce Lee. I thought it was unfair in the way that he also portrayed, uh, you know, Steve McQueen or Sharon Tate uh, historical figures in a very sympathetic light. Um, and so I thought he was very sensitive about those characters, but not nearly as sensitive about Bruce. Um, and yeah. that I thought the difference between those two, uh, given that they're the white characters and Bruce Lee is one of the few <laughs> non-white right. characters in the movie. I thought that that was problematic. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely understand now. Cause when I first watched the movie, I had, again, I'd never seen sure. a film, you know, I'd, I'd seen his influences and knew I could picture him in my mind and some of the quotes <clears> and things, but watching the film, it didn't bother that scene happened. And right. I thought, you know, Oh, it's fun. Tarantino throwing a real historical character and had right. Cliff Booth look really cool by taking him out, you know, tricking him. And, and now I kind of understand both sides of it. So I understand I understand where uh, Bruce Lee's daughter is coming from, obviously. Um, and, and Tarantino even admits, you know, he sees where that's coming from and the frustration. But what's, you know, I feel still mixed on the portrayal, you know, because, and I think, honestly, I think it's the novel where I, you know, now it's hard to separate the novel and the film because I think the novel gives a lot better, mm. you know, version of that and and the the strategy in Cliff's mind and the mm-hmm. way that that played out. But what is really interesting to me is um, something that Shannon Lee brought up that was, you know, it, it just gave me something to think about was, you know, Kill Bill is very inspired by Bruce Lee. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's so much. And she 
you know, she mentioned how much he avoided, you know, referencing the influence of Bruce Lee. And then in this portrayal, there's like this kind of, it does feel kind of like there's a, some kind of, she said like a vendetta, but it kind of does feel like that when you hear the interviews, like he seems very upset. And I think it's just because he's getting asked about it so much, Sure, but you know, he does cite, I think it was on Rogan. He cited your Mm -hmm. um, book and, you know, the disdain for American stuntmen. He said he pulled from there, which wasn't quite accurate. So no, it's just an interesting thing seeing this happen. I think it's kind of unfortunate because on the one hand, it's Tarantino being Tarantino. So I feel like he's known for taking characters and just doing some broad version of them. On the other hand, I get the representation part and where she's coming from. So what is it in your book that Tarantino read that gave him the depiction of Bruce Lee that we ended up seeing once, once upon a time in Hollywood? Because it seems like there was almost a misreading of your text that he used as a foundational piece for a lot of this. Yeah. So uh, what he referenced in Rogan, and I think it's interesting. He, um, he keeps coming back to this. I mean, he, he reached out and called me. So this is something that really bugs him. Um, and my, you know, my reaction was you're Tarantino. What do you care? <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, that's the thing about sensitive artists. Like what makes Tarantino great is he's somebody who worries about this stuff even after the fact. Right. Um, and you know, all respect to him. He's one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. Uh, and this is a minor, tiny little issue. So, uh, a tempest in a teacup, but yeah, it's, it's one scene in a yes, massive film. It's yeah. Three minutes long in a massive film. Uh, but the issue that he brought up on Rogan was in on the green Hornet. Um, Bruce Lee was trying to do Bruce Lee choreography and he was dealing with Western guys trained in the John Wayne punch. So Bruce Lee was like, let me just throw three punches here and a kick and a knee. And they're like, dude, I only deal with a right hook. <laughs> Like, right. Uh, and so they were frustrated with this little Chinese guy who was trying to do all this stuff that they, A, didn't like and B, couldn't do. And in the process, occasionally Bruce Lee would bang him up. You know, they would like try the stunts and Bruce Lee would do something and they'd get a little bruised here or there. Uh, and so they complained about him. They were like, you know, this little punk Chinese guy is coming in here and get knocking us up. And these are like 45 year old, you know, old time TV stuntmen um, who probably are not the most racially enlightened either. Um, (laughs) That's a good guess. (laughs) um, And so, uh, you know, they complained about it and they got to one of the head stuntmen, uh, uh, Judo Jean LaBelle. And he, he, there's a famous story he tells that's not totally confirmable that he like picked Bruce Lee up and walked around the set with him to kind of calm him down. Uh, So there was this conflict and it was, racial and generational and also cultural um, yeah. on the set of, but it wasn't a big deal. And Bruce Lee would never have challenged a stuntman to a fight. Like this was his first job in Hollywood. Like yeah. he was a new guy on set. He was, the reason he was doing this was a lot because he was really nervous and he wanted to prove himself. Right. And so the way he portrays Bruce is as if he was already this iconic superstar who mm. was kind of, pissing down on this tiny stuntman who's barely got a job, which he wouldn't have been in 1969. That's right. So he takes sort of Bruce Lee from 1973, who's already super like international star and projects him back into 1967, Bruce Lee, who is essentially the new kid in school. 
Yeah. He's the only Asian on set. He's never had a Hollywood job. He's scared to death. He wants to prove himself. He's got a wife and a kid he can't afford to pay for if he loses this job. So he's not a guy who's going to do that. Um, and so, again, Tarantino, it's a movie. He can do whatever he wants. But if you ask if that's accurate of who Bruce Lee was on the set of The Green Hornet, it's not. It, he took some aspects, which is Bruce Lee did bang up stuntmen accidentally and turned it into kind of Bruce Lee intentionally trying to hurt. Schoolyard brawl. Yeah. Yeah. Between he, two people. He wasn't the bully there. He was kind of like a hyper, uh, the way Van Williams, who played the Green Hornet, described him is he was like my hyperactive younger brother who was always bouncing around and sh- yeah. he would be like, here, let me show you my new kick. Yeah. And trying to impress people because he was nervous, not because he was thought he was the biggest star in the world because he wasn't and he no. wasn't trying to hurt people. He was trying to earn his way to the top. And that's where I drew. So this is where I've kind of landed in some way is like, uh-huh. I, cause I listen and it, it is weird. I will, I will agree with <sighs> Shannon Lee on the fact that it does feel like, like there's some personal beef with Bruce Lee when you hear Tarantino <laughs> talk. Cause I, yeah. cause I've heard him talk about, I mean, his attitude is often with his movies, you know, he'll, you know, I mean, his exact quote, you know, like, he said, if you don't like it, you know, go suck it, go suck a dick. Like that was his response on uh-huh, Rogan, yeah. which is very Tarantino, but it feels angrier than normal. You know, yeah. Tarantino usually will say that with his, with his, you know, his, uh, and that was a direct quote. If you're listening, I'm not just throwing in, um, but you know, if, you know, it, he does that with his other films, but it's usually just a casual, like, oh, it doesn't bother me. If you don't like it, you don't like it. If you don't like how I dealt with Hitler, or you don't like how I dealt with it. This feels very specific. And I think, do you think it's just because? his because it's you know shannon lee also responding to it and he feels like there's this back and forth he has to get a little bit more aggressive like because it just feels strange that this is the thing he's chosen to really die on because i mean sharon tate i mean just dealing with that he got so much more flack than the bruce lee thing in the beginning um it just seems odd this is the thing that he's very defensive of i guess in the in the thing did did do you know any reason why this is something that's so important? Cause I, I know he's a Bruce Lee fan. So, I mean, I got to assume there's some part of him too, that's hurt that it is being interpreted this way. Yeah. I think it's interesting. I think he actually has complicated feelings about Bruce Lee. He once said he liked the Bruce Lee knockoff movies better than the Bruce Lee movies. Mm, that's such which, a Tarantino thing to say. <laughs> it is. It totally is. And yeah. if you've watched any of the knockoff Bruce Lee movies, you know that that's insane, but yeah. Um, but yes. Yeah, so um, I think, I think, think it has to do with the sensitivity to race in, in 19 and 2021 yeah. versus, you know, if you remember, he got a bunch of grief for excessive use of the N word in his earlier movies, right? Did he? Do people talk about that? <laughs> uh, so, you know, when Spike Lee went after him and, right. you know, and some people doubled down after, very yeah. heavily on that. Yeah. Yeah. So, but that was a time when you, when there was more, where it wasn't culturally quite as hard, difficult to sort of go against the current of whatever the politically correct thing was. And so I think, um, I think he felt a little blindsided. Um, And there's some reporting actually that on set, he wanted to do that scene even more extensively. And even Mm -hmm. Brad Pitt was a little worried. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a quote from one of Brad Pitt's people saying, dude, it's Bruce Lee. I mean, (laughs) you can't have me beat up Bruce Lee. Um, so I think he probably pushed hard and got some grief, 
um, early on and then was still got even more grief than he expected. Uh, and I, I also think it's this, which is, I feel he, he feels this movie is almost like the capstone of his career. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he keeps saying he's only going to make one more and maybe make one more. Like he's, yeah. he's talked like this could be his masterpiece, his finished right. movie, which it could very well could be. I mean, it's a fantastic movie. It is. I love yeah. it. Um, so I think, I think it may be that is that he thought he delivered his masterpiece. And then there's this one thing everybody keeps digging at him at, you know, every interview they do, they go, Oh, we loved your movie. What about Bruce Lee? What about his daughter? Da, da, da. Yeah. And, and it's, it's like that. It's like, you know, the thing, it's like someone saying your wife's nose is crooked. You're like, I love her. And she says, it's crooked. No. Like they keep digging at him about the one thing and it pisses him off. And the angrier he gets, the more defensive he gets. And the more outlandish, I mean, his responses. I mean, I thought like, yeah. you know, it was kind of, it was, it's, it's almost fun to watch it from the sidelines, you know, but yeah. it's, you know, cause it is, it's turn in, and that's just his personality too. He fixates on one thing, you yeah. know, and that's why um, I won't spend the rest of the time talking about Tarantino, but that's one of the things I love, you know, when he gives movie recommendations, you'll watch the movie and go like that movie was terrible, but yeah. you can see the one five uh-huh. second moment that he took yeah. for something else. And he, he's so fixated on that five second moment that a terrible movie became better than the superior right. films around it. Um, one last thing before we navigate from once upon a time in Hollywood, cause I want to talk about this because I, I want to confirm if this is, you know, like this is something I wish we could have covered in the film, but I understand why not. Um, but you know, one of the, one of the elements of Bruce's story, and I think it may have been one of Tarantino's early interviews. He talked about this on one of the podcasts or something, but um, Roman Polanski thought Bruce Lee had committed mm-hmm. the Sharon Tate murders in yes. 16. Is that accurate? Yes. So, um, so what happened is Bruce Lee worked with Sharon state, uh, Sharon Tate on the wrecking crew. Right. So mm-hmm. they were friends and he was the fight choreographer. Um, and he basically taught her how to throw a sidekick. You know, this was how early it was before yeah. everybody knew these things. Um, and so if you watch the the movie, which is also shown in Tarantino's, uh, there's a scene where he, uh, where she does some uh, very basic martial arts. Yeah. Uh, and she introduced him to her husband, Rowan Polanski and Rowan Polanski became one of Bruce Lee's students. They didn't train very often. It might've been eight or nine times. But, you know, Bruce Lee went over the house and they considered each other friends in right. that Hollywood way where you consider the people who work for you friends. Um, <clears throat> so uh, they were training after the Tate murders. Um, and the one thing, one of the things that um, happened, the, the police told Roman Polanski that one of the killers had lost his glasses at the scene of the crime. And so they were looking for somebody who had a certain prescription that was the same as the glasses found at the the crime. Bruce Lee also wore glasses. He was nearsighted and he was having a lesson with uh, Roman. And he said, Roman, I, you know, after this lesson, I need to go get some glasses because I just lost mine. (laughs) And Roman and Roman, who was grieving, obviously was also personally trying to investigate the murders himself. And so for a very brief moment, Roman thought, oh, my God, did Bruce Lee kill my wife? And so Polanski suggested, hey, why don't I take you to the store and I'll buy you the glasses as a gift? 
essentially trying to find out if Bruce Lee oh. was the killer. They drove to the store and Bruce Lee told the lady his prescription and it wasn't the same. And then uh-huh. Roman realized, ah, okay, it's not Bruce. He, he was relieved. He didn't think it was, but for that brief moment, <clears throat> he was I... driving in a car with Bruce Lee thinking maybe this is the man. So that's, you don't get much more pure cinema than that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's something where, um, you know, it's something where like you wish you could have had that scene, in yeah. the, but it wouldn't have made any sense No, in the film, but it, it is such a, like when I first heard that story, I was like, that's such a gut that that would have been the most gut wrenching feeling uh-huh. thinking, yep. you know, if, but, and again, with how random those looked, you know, like you got to be grasping at anything, trying to figure out what this is and who did that's this. Right. Um, but that's the last thing I want to ask about was that because I, it sounds like one of those things, like it's almost too crazy. Like it's like, Oh, Bruce Lee somehow connected to this in some way. Like there's, that's also part of this lore yeah. and this story. That's still, there's elements of it that we're trying to figure out. Um, I wanted to know if that was like more urban legend than real. No, life, it's, but. it's, it's true. And what I realized is um, you don't think about it, but particularly at that time, Hollywood was such a small community yeah. Uh, that in many ways I felt like I was writing about a high school. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, cause you know, there was a period like Bruce Lee and Steve McQueen both dated the same woman, wow. like, yeah. Sharon Farrell. Uh, and they're both married. So this was extra, extra marital. Um, and I, you know, they just all knew each other, you know, they worked on different films, they went to similar parties, and they got to know each other. And so Bruce was the kind of new kid who was not that popular, but, you know, had some cool friends. And he was trying to work his way up the high school. And if you think of Hollywood as a high school, you can understand it better. And so it's bizarre that he knew Sharon Tate, trained with her, but and even more bizarre that Roman thought he killed her, but it's like a high school movie. But also not bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> also makes perfect sense that he would have met Roman Polanski at that time and worked with him in some capacity with exactly. how small knit that world was. Yeah. Um, yeah. Speaking of that, I mean, talking about working your way up, I mean, the tragic thing about Bruce Lee's career, you know, and, and I watched uh, my entry to Bruce Lee was uh, watching Way of the Dragon because I was like, he mm-hmm. directs it. Um, Chuck Norris is kind of like the uh-huh. American Bruce Lee at that time. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, to me, it was like, I got to start here. Cause this has got to be peak, you know, this has got to be it and was blown away by a couple of things. I mentioned on a, on an episode I've previously recorded with somebody. Um, I was blown away by how funny Bruce Lee is, um, mm-hmm. especially coming off the heels of the portrayal in once upon a time Hollywood. So funny. Um, very, very much like Jackie Chan style of a lot yeah. of humor, but then once the, the stunt comes into play, it's mind blowing. Um, and really, you know, I, I watched that movie again, not under like knowing nothing about Bruce Lee past his influences. And I'm going like, okay, so this is, you know, 1972, this movie is amazing. He must've blown up here. What was next? And realizing that was like the end, like 1972 was that movie that launched him into what we know Bruce Lee as now. Mm-hmm. And then 1973, he passes away right. and you know, looking at it as someone who was, you know, you've charted his journey to that point. Mm-hmm. What do you think would have happened after that, that movie? Cause I, I have to imagine his career would have been in the stratosphere um, after that movie. 
It was. So Way of the Dragon and then Enter the Dragon, which is the comes out right after or which, he makes right after. If I'm am I wrong in remembering the Enter the Dragon was was assembled after he passed, right? So there's some footage that's or or is that not true to shoot that entire that, movie? That's uh, that you you've got it but the name's slightly wrong. So a Game of Death was assembled after he died. Gotcha. Uh, okay. Um Enter the Dragon was finished. Um and about to be released and he died a month before the release wow so it was completely done and that's the movie enter the dragon made with warner brothers where it's on the island it's basically a james bond knockoff um uh, that's the one that launches him into the stratosphere and then everyone goes back and watches the three hong kong movies big boss fist of fury and what you mentioned way of the dragon with chuck norris so the the third one is a great one to look at because that's Bruce in total artistic control. Yeah. Um, but it's also his, you know, freshman effort. Um, yeah. That's the first time he ever wrote his own film. The first time he ever directed. Um, oh, what an incredible freshman effort. Like, yeah, exactly. What, it, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's well-written. It's a, it's, it's a very simple movie, yeah. but it's, it's really well-directed. The action is really fun. Like, and then, you know, reading the behind the scenes stories, like, like sneaking into the Coliseum to record a fight. I mean, that's right. It's a, it's it like reading stories. Like it just, it, it adds so much, like the more that you read about him and I understand why you became obsessive about him is that it is like when you're like his first movie as a director, he's shooting something in, you know, that's this ambitious. It's got a lot of humor and fun and great fights. And then you're bringing in Chuck Norris, who was like, huge at that time and like building up it's like the original batman versus superman and then you've got you know and then not only that he's risking like bribing security guards to go shoot secretly in the coliseum (laughs) because he has to do it like that's that's about as you know pure artist as you can get to like take those risks on your first film and it's like it's a gut punch realizing like what could we have gotten because he was 33 30, 32. Yep. Yeah. Like, I mean, what could he have done at 40 when he's a massive American star working with massive budgets and directing and like, I mean, cause he would be similar age to Chuck Norris now. Right. I mean, he would have had, That's a, right. it's just unreal. It's a, yeah, it's he'd, have, unreal. he'd have been younger than Clint Eastwood. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, you know, I think he would have followed Clint Eastwood's career, which is, I think he would have shifted to more directing and would have done a lot of movies where he was the director actor. Um, one of the tragedies I think of him dying at that age is he opened the door to Asian actors, but yeah. only to Asian actors if they played Kung Fu masters, <laughs> like, right. not as directors, not as, you know, not as romantic leading men, um, and not as comedians. Ex- well, Jackie Chan in a certain sense, but because he had a great sense of humor, I'm sure he would have tried to do comedies. Some might've worked better than others. Also because he was so handsome, um, there was he was in talks to star against Sophia Loren. Wow. Um, wow. And think what a different world it would have been if we had an Asian actor who was, you know, uh, at a romantic leading hero, who was somebody who could, you know, to this day, we still don't have an Asian male actor who is a convincing uh, romantic hero in a romantic comedy or in a kind of drama. Yeah, and they always have to play like the martial arts master 
And right. so I think he would have broken or down. an all Asian cast, you know, like exactly. Only where it's, a, it's an Asian romantic comedy, you know, That's instead right. of being just naturally, this is what it is. Right. There's no, there are no parts for an Asian romantic leading man. If the actress is white or black or anything mm-hmm. other than Asian. Um, and they've tried a couple times, but it still hasn't succeeded. So I think, um, I think he would have broken down a lot of those barriers. I also think he would have, he would be remembered much differently because we would have seen him grow into a stardom and make all the same mistakes that stars make, you know, there would have been divorces. There probably would have been a stint in rehab. You know, he would have made a comeback. He'd have made, you know, way of the dragon four. (laughs) He'd had a little like Sylvester Stallone, right. He'd had his fallow period where all his yeah. movies failed and he would have had know. his 80s run of action movies like stallone and schwarzenegger and exactly. all those guys yeah he'd have, he'd have showed up in a bad schwarzenegger film and like you know they would he'd have done all of those things and he would have be a complete sort of celebrity and what he what he ended up being which is probably better for his longevity but worse for understanding him as a person is he got reduced to being a kung fu icon um this kind of archetype of the martial arts master um and that's not who he was as a complete human being but that's how we remember him and because we can reduce him to that you know small little thing that probably increases his longevity because he can be fit into a box right well and and there's nothing you can't look and say here was the dip in his career you know like it was here's this these five you know five incredible movies and the the question of what if just solidifies him as the icon because we can't picture him having a, yes. a down. It's very much in a totally different way. It's kind of what happened with Sharon Tate, you know, because like yeah. she was right on the peak. It, she didn't have a good run of films like Bruce Lee did. Um, right. I think she had a couple good roles in some films that were, you know, very hit or miss. Yeah. But we saw what she was position to be right and that's what makes it you know from an artistic level it's tragic for many reasons but from an artistic level alone it's tragic because we see what could have we can imagine a sharon tate in a bond film or we can imagine a sharon tate in a in a polanski drama we can imagine that and same with lee like there's so much where like i said when you really understand how young he was when he passed it's like man Norris had Walker, Texas Ranger and all these films. Like what would Lee have had? What would, you know, Stallone had Rocky and Schwarzenegger had, or uh, had Terminator. Like what would Lee's series have been that we would, you know, remember? Um, I I know I already asked you kind of like the impact yet. And obviously Mm -hmm. fighting style alone is enough to say like, there's a big impact and talking about the impact Mm -hmm. he had, you know, just in how we viewed other cultures and at the American film market. I'm curious with how much he's influenced, how many films have been made about Bruce Lee and, you know, shows about him and um, characters, depictions. Um, what are, what's maybe your favorite on-screen depiction of Bruce Lee? Um, and, uh, and then maybe a step further, like what's your favorite film that seems directly influenced by Bruce Lee or his films? Oh, that's Great question. And there's a lot of them. So I'll just do a top of mind without that's no guarantee. If I spent like five minutes, I'm sure I could give you even better answers. You know, I top of mind, I was thinking of the raid okay. uh, because it's very much game of death, which was, he had filmed 30 minutes of the movie and then it was constructed after he died, oh. the rest of it. 
that structure of like the hero starts at the bottom of the pagoda and works his way up as a level. That's the structure of like half of video games. Uh, and, and And a good portion of action movies, this idea of fighting the little guys and then you get to the big boss. I just was watching the latest Bond movie and there's very much like there's a whole scene that's essentially him working his way up the little guys until he gets to a the long scene of that. Yeah. And I loved every second. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, he he created that kind of archetype. Um, Game of Death was really the first one to do that. And so I think he and if we're talking about impact. That's that's definitely one of them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then recent sort of portrayals of him. Uh I was very impressed with the TV series on Cinemax Warrior, hmm. which which is very loosely based on an, a concept Bruce had back in 1970, 69, 70, where he thought about doing his own movie that uh, became the TV series Kung Fu. And he had a slightly different take on it. And Shannon Lee developed it and then Cinemax picked it up. And that whole series has a real sort of sense of kind of Bruce Lee, the vibe of who Bruce Lee was. Right. Right. Was, was, um, I'll ask you one more. I got to ask one more question uh, related sure. to that because you just mentioned Kung Fu. Um, it, it's just hard not to ask Tarantino really yeah. a question because he's been so actively talking about this. So he, he also mentioned on a recent show, maybe it was the Joe Rogan as well. Yeah. Um, he talked about the date, like Bruce Lee had written, Warrior, mm-hmm. which became Kung Fu, and David Carradine, he felt had he felt that that had been stolen from him and from right. his script. It was, is that the case? Like when you look at the when you look at the scripts created by you know or the concept created by Bruce Lee, was he did he really feel that way? First of all, from the people you've talked to and the research you've done, and do you think that was accurate? Do you think that's what ended up happening? Yeah. So. Uh, uh, his wife, Linda Lee believes that's happened. And so we have to assume that Bruce sort of told her that because otherwise she wouldn't have known. Um, So this must've come from Bruce. Uh, From all the research I did, Tarantino's correct. Um, The, the Kung Fu TV series was an original written by Ed Spielman and Howard Freelander Mm -hmm. who had no idea who Bruce Lee was and then never heard of him. And they sold it to Warner brothers and Warner brothers the producer Fred Weintraub was looking for an actor to play the lead in the series and talked to Bruce. Um, and uh. Bruce and Bruce said, I have some ideas for it. And then I think later Bruce started to have ideas for a different version because the project initially got shelved. Um, it was originally supposed to be a, a movie, a theatrical release, and then got re rejiggered to become a TV show. So when it got rejiggered, Bruce Lee came in to audition for the part and wasn't given it. And it was given to um, David Carradine. And Bruce was really upset. And at that time, he also pitched his version of Kung Fu. Um, So he, he, he had nothing to do with the original screenplay. And there's some question of whether or not he sort of copied it. Yeah. (laughs) And it's one of those classic Hollywood stories where multiple people, this concept's getting big at the same time. Yep. There's a lot of feelings probably on both sides. You know, there's probably people going, why are you now doing warrior? Uh (laughs) You know, and there's people on his side, you know, I think the most, you know, yeah, I, I, I I was curious if that was the case, you know? Yeah. It's, it's like, you know, when there was two movies about animated ants or two movies the same year about an asteroid hitting the planet. 
yeah. Um, I just had a screenwriter on and he just told me, he's like, I was writing this intro for my film and a movie came out while we were writing the script that had the exact intro beat for beat. Uh-huh. And, and, you know, and he was like, I don't know if they saw my screenplay floating around and grabbed that section, or I don't know if they just had the same idea because this was on the minds of people at the time. It yep. just seems like that happens sometimes. Yeah. And so that's that's the case, which is Kung Fu was an original uh, screenplay, uh, and Bruce had a different spin. And, you know, as a Chinese actor, it's very, it's easy to think about the idea of I would be in the old West. So it's an yeah. obvious concept. Yeah, it would have been a hearkening back to the Clint Eastwood stuff that he loved too. Um, exactly, it would have been an interesting, interesting full circle. But look, I want to, um, I want to respect your time. I, I want to ask you a couple quick questions. Sure. I usually do a random round. I'll pivot it a little bit because um, uh-huh. it's usually I'm asking a filmmaker, but as a fan of Bruce Lee, I'll kind of uh, pivot these a little bit. Um, what is um, you're a big fan of martial arts movies, obviously. You're a big fan yeah. of Bruce Lee. What is a movie that your fans or readers would be surprised to know that you enjoy? Is there a film that's kind of like a, I can't believe that he also enjoys this genre or this type of movie? <laughs> that's a great, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I, I immediately thought of Sleepless in Seattle. Like, <laughs> Nice. Good choice though. <laughs> yeah, it's a good movie. Um, but yeah, I, I, I like, um, I like romantic comedies in a way of kind of sort of same, overly, same just here. take your brain, put it over there. Perfect. Perfect. What do you think is the best decade of film history? Uh, this is the obvious answer, but I have to say the seventies. Yeah. I, I, I'd be inclined to agree. I think the eighties gets overrated. I think the seventies really yeah. is a period where it was just like anything goes and you got to see some really, you know, auteurs really just do whatever they wanted and make crazy films that you can't imagine them making even today. Um, I, I, I mean, love the seventies. Yeah. I mean, the seventies then is what TV is today. You know, it's, wow, it was, yeah. it's the, the kind of opening up and allowing people to kind of have free range, but also an audience that was receptive to it um, because Hollywood will make whatever the audience will go to. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes we blame the industry, but the truth is the audience today just <laughs> we're buying Avengers six tickets, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, that's the one, that's what people want to see. They don't want to see an easy writer too. So yeah. we don't get easy writer too. Yeah. It's funny. It's, it's really interesting how you describe that. Cause like chemistry teacher gets cancer and starts selling meth is such a seventies movie concept. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, <laughs> that's, that's exactly really right. Funny. Um, what is the best piece of advice you would give to an aspiring filmmaker? Um, and you know, I, I, I'm still going to ask you this question because I know, I know you're obviously not just working uh-huh. purely in that world, but I, I guess if you could give um, advice to people who are taking inspiration from, you know, different films, people who are maybe portraying, you know, Bruce Lee in a film or, or portraying, um, you know, things that have happened in the past in new ways. Like what's some advice you'd give to people, you know, referencing or alluding to cinematic history? Um, you know, the, I, I mean, I'll, I'll tell the r- advice I give to people who want to be writers, which I think is similar, which is um, you have to know whatever genre you're doing inside and out. Um, and I think the mistake sometimes people make is they write in genres where they only read the good stuff and they don't read the bad stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can learn as much from watching the terrible films in a genre as you can from watching the good ones. Um, and so that's my advice is like, uh, well, I have lots of advice for people or stuff, but I would, I just pick that out for now, which is, 
Um, I think filmmakers who know, and the one thing that makes Tarantino so brilliant is he knows the worst things that have ever been made. Yeah, I know. I've watched a lot because we'll talk about them glowingly on podcasts. And I'll be like, what in the world? That was a two-hour movie with nothing happening except for exactly, one good scene. Exactly. My life has been ruined. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that's what makes him brilliant. And I think that's you, you really have to love the genre you're working in. Right, right. Yeah, I'll I'll never forgive Tarantino for making me watch uh, CC Rider, um, <laughs> um, except for the opening scene, which is which is brilliant. Um, and last question I always ask: If you were given the green light to remake any film, what would you choose and why? I'm going to direct this to you. Um, uh-huh. There's so much being remade right now. Is there any of the Bruce Lee run of films that you'd like to see potentially remade, and um, you know, and why, or or what would you want to see happen with that? Um, they are actually working on a remake of Enter the Dragon. So they've hmm. been work, working on that for years. Um, I actually think, weirdly enough, uh, your audience won't know this, but the last movie he made as a Hong Kong child actor was called The Orphan. Okay. And, and it was basically James Dean's Rebel Without a Cause. Uh, and I think it would be brilliant to do that today with a whole Chinese cast and essentially do rebel without a cause from a Hong Kong perspective um, and use Bruce Lee's basis. Cause uh, if very few people have ever seen it, cause it doesn't get distributed in the West, uh, but it is actually Bruce Lee's best acting performance. Really interesting. Is there any way to watch it outside of no (laughs) interesting? Yeah. It's, it's super hard to get a copy of it and it's not, you can, you can buy it though. I think you can get the DVD. And it has like English subs or something. It's, it does. It has English subs. It's done in color. It's 1959. Oh. Um, and it's actually, you know, it's not great filmmaking, but it's as good as Hong Kong filmmaking was in 1959. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to talk through this. And uh, I'm definitely going to be uh, dedicating a ridiculous amount of time to tracking this down. Cause I want to, I want to check out orphan for sure. Um, but thanks for shedding some light on this. And like I mentioned with the show talking about cinematic influences, the Bruce Lee episode had to come sooner rather than later. So thank you so much. And for people who want to hear more from you, get more insights from you, what's the best place to do that? Um, do you have uh, your website? I know obviously you have your book, which there's a link to in the show notes. Um, what would be the best place for people to, to see your work? Um, yeah, my website, www.mattpolly.com, M-A-T-T-P-O-L-L-Y.com. And also I'm on Twitter at Matthew E. Polly. So you can DM me there if you have any questions. All or, your angry DMs are, can go right, right there. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And thank you everyone for listening. Be sure to head to the show notes, grab a copy of Matt's book. And uh, thanks so much. I'll see you guys on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Film School Podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, don't forget to leave a five-star review and hit subscribe so you won't miss a single episode.